are listening to Graceway's weekly message podcast. We hope that this message encourages you to know and enjoy God, find friends, discover your purpose, and make a difference in your community. Enjoy the message. We are in the last quarter of the year, and we are rapidly closing out our one year in the Bible. This is week 41 of a one year in the Bible together. And this week we come to an incredibly pivotal moment in the life of the early church. This, this early church that we're looking at is it's kind of a startup. You know, we're, we're kind of familiar with startup businesses right now. And this, this uh, early church is a startup. And there's lots of tension because there's rapid growth, but there's also incredible opposition to this new group of people who are living their lives to follow Jesus. And, and you know, uh, movements are full of powerful moments. Uh, today we come to a moment where Saul, also known as the Apostle Paul, goes from someone who is killing Christians to someone who becomes a Christian himself. It's a powerful moment in the life of the early church uh, and would actually propel the movement of the church beyond just Jerusalem and the people of Israel but to Gentiles as well, those who are not of the people of Israel ethnically. You know, one of the most uh, powerful movements in the history of our country was the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. You see, movements are always formed by powerful moments. And there was a young pastor who at the time was 26 years old, just a year into his pastorate, who would have to decide whether he was a part of this new movement or whether he pulled back. You see, young Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was was torn about throwing his support behind this fledgling civil rights movement, behind this Montgomery bus boycott after Rosa Parks had been arrested for not giving up her seat to a white person on the bus. He was concerned that maybe this boycott of the Montgomery bus system was unethical and possibly even unchristian. By boycotting the bus system, uh, it would harm others because of their actions. But it also seemed to possibly be responding to a wrong committed by doing a wrong for revenge. However, Dr. King saw that the Montgomery bus system was actually formed in evil through its inception and segregation that it perpetuated. And this boycott was simply a decision to no longer comply with the evil. He volunteered a room in his basement of the church he was pastoring at for a meeting for those organizing this new movement. And he was slated to be the main speaker for that night's event. In the basement of the Holt Street Church, the young pastor, Dr. Reverend Bishop King, would say these words. He would say, we are not wrong in what we're doing. If we are wrong, the Supreme Court of this nation is wrong. If we are wrong, the Constitution of the United States is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, Jesus of Nazareth is merely a utopian dreamer that never came down to earth. If we are wrong, he said, justice is a lie. Love has no meaning, and we are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Dr. King inspired his listeners that night, but he also inspired himself, didn't he? And he would give the remaining 12 years and four months of his life to fight every single day 
to see that movement go forward. And today, we see a new church moving forward that's full of these moments. Today, even in our time, we see a church moving forward full of moments where people's minds are changed and their futures are forever shifted. You may be sitting in this place today because your mind was changed and your future was forever shifted. Amen? This is what the movement of the church has always been about. And today we're going to see it through the conversion of Saul. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. I'm going to read his conversion. If you can follow along with me on the screen and hear the words of God today. Starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in, lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and who, uh, those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you today that you change people. We thank you today that you transform hard hearts into hearts of flesh. God, we ask you today that as we study your word, Holy Spirit, you would help us rightly divide it and rightly apply it to our lives. And that today, 
like Saul, we would be transformed by the person and work of Jesus. Help us, Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You see, we first meet Saul in Acts chapter 7. Saul, who is also known as Paul, um, and uh, against uh, commonly understood uh, thinking, he was not given the name Paul at his conversion. Saul was a a Jewish man, and Saul was his Jewish name, but he was also a Roman citizen, and so he would have been known by both Saul and Paul. He becomes more commonly known as the Apostle Paul as he begins his missionary journeys. But in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen, one of Jesus' disciples, being murdered by having rocks thrown at him until he dies. He just preached to the high priests and the Pharisees about how they killed Jesus and that he was the Messiah. And while the people were picking up stones, they, you know, sometimes if anybody ever just like, uh, it's been cold outside, but you go to play basketball, you got to take your jacket off to really uh, hoop like you want to. For these people taking up rocks to throw at Stephen, they wanted to get a good throw. And so they took their cloaks off, their coats off, and they laid them at the feet of a young Pharisee named Saul. And Saul stood in encouragement of the murder of Stephen. This is where we first see Saul. But something drastic happens in our text today, doesn't it? To that young Pharisee. And I want to preach to you today from the idea, you can't outrun God. (laughs) No, you cannot, can you? Turn to your neighbor and say, you ain't fast enough. Turn to your other neighbor and say, you don't have the endurance. <laughs> yeah. Some of y'all been running, and you know. You know you cannot outrun God. You see, there's multiple things that can have you running from God, aren't there? Failure can cause you to try to run from God. Your life hasn't worked out how you thought it should. And your anger against your circumstances causes you to distance yourself from God. Jonah shows us someone who doesn't like what God is asking him to do. And he is a prophet of God who runs from God. Maybe you can identify with Jonah. God's asking you to do something and you don't want to do it. And so you're distancing yourself from him. Success can also cause you to run from God. I'm doing good. I don't need God. The work of my hands is what provides for me. You see, Saul was a successful Pharisee. He was highly trained, highly educated, highly respected, influential. And Jesus was nowhere in his plans for his life. His only desire about Jesus was to eradicate the earth of those who followed him. When we see him today, he's going to the high priest in Jerusalem to get letters so he can go arrest some more Christians in a town called Damascus. Now, Damascus was about 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It was about a six days walk by foot. So you know you gotta be committed to something to walk six days to accomplish it. Y'all like, I'm not trying to walk anywhere. I barely walked to the fridge. That's why I had kids, amen. (laughs) Go get me a drink, you know. Um, (laughs) But as we lean into our story today, I wanna encourage everyone listening to feel this text. You see, Saul was in the synagogues in Jerusalem. He was in the churches of that day. He was close to all the activity that Jesus was doing during 
his ministry. He was around the time when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And what I think we need to see today is that proximity to Jesus doesn't mean you aren't running from him. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Being close to Jesus' activity doesn't mean you aren't running from him. And this should hit home for everyone listening today. The first thing I want us to see from Saul's story is this. Where you are headed, God is already there. Woo! Wherever you're headed, God is already there. Verse 3 tells us that as he was on his way to Damascus, a light shone down on him from heaven, knocked him to his rear end. And he heard a voice that said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. You see, Saul had plans in Damascus, didn't he? Yeah, he was going to catch him some Christians. He was becoming famous for his ability to root out those who were following this new way of life, this living for Jesus. But as he was on his way, something happened. He had an experience with Jesus. Some of y'all today were on your way to do something, and you had an experience with Jesus. Some of you are here today, and you got plans for the future, but you may just have an experience with Jesus today. Paul thought his plans were taking him to Damascus, but it was God's plan taking him to Damascus. You see, God's plans are more powerful than yours. Your plans for your life may have nothing to do with Jesus at all. You may want him as far away from you as possible, but he, got, he has plans for you. Proverbs 19 and 21 says it like this. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You see, God's plans are more powerful than you. I'm, I hate to break it to you today, but God will jack up your life in the best possible way. He will take your plans and flip them upside down. He will take what you thought was best for you and reveal that you had no idea. Mm. God's plans are more powerful than you. Wherever you're going, he already is there. God is also close to you even when you feel far from him. Verse 4 tells us this. This is interesting. Saul falls to the ground and he hears a voice. And the voice says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, when Jesus confronts Saul, he asks him, why are you persecuting me? But Saul isn't persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting Jesus' followers. This gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. You see, we allow suffering and pain oftentimes to push us from God. But what we see here is that when God's people are suffering, that's when he's the closest. He feels like the persecution of Christians is him being persecuted. Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're running from God in your suffering. And he says, I'm right next to you. Your suffering is my suffering. When you feel pain, I feel pain. When you experience loss, I feel loss. You're mine. You belong to me. When you're being persecuted, it's like Jesus is experiencing it himself. He identifies with his people, especially in their suffering. When we suffer... And that causes us to run from God. He isn't running from you. He's with you every single step. And no matter how far you run from him, he's always right there. Psalm 139, 7 through 10 says it like this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, 
You're there. If I go down to Sheol, guess what? You're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I don't know where you're at right now. (laughs) I don't know how close or how far away from God you feel right now. But I know the truth of his word says he's right next to you. You feel like you're stepping blindly into the next situation, and he says, my hand is guiding you into the next situation. Wherever you're going, God is already there. But Saul isn't the only character in our story. Verse 10 introduces us to a disciple, a follower of Jesus who's already in Damascus. His name is Ananias. When God calls to Ananias, he answers God like the Old Testament prophets. He says, here I am, Lord, showing us that he's willing and ready to do what God says. Man, would it be said of us that when God calls our name, we would say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I'm ready for you. Wouldn't it be great if that was said of us? And then God tells Ananias to do something. Verse 11. The Lord said to him, rise and go to Straight Street. At the house of Judas, there's a man named Saul from Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. He's seen you coming to him in a vision to lay hands on him and restore his sight. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, have you heard about this guy? (laughs) How much evil he's done and that he's here to arrest folk like me? Huh. But the Lord said, go, for he's my chosen instrument. I want to preach to you from this idea here, from Ananias' story. Your what's next is God's already done. Man, this has been hitting me this week. Your what's next is God's already done. Now, at first sight, Ananias is ready to listen to what God says. Here I am, Lord. But when he hears what God wants him to do, there's a hesitation, isn't there? Lord, do you know who this dude is? He kind of has a reputation, God. He doesn't take kindly to folk like me. You you see, here's what we see from Ananias. You can be faithful and fearful. You can be faithful and still be afraid sometimes. Ananias loved God, but he had some fears about what he was being asked to do. I'm sure he's thinking, how am I going to do this? What if something happens? God, what if Saul isn't as ready for you as you are for him? (laughs) You see, doubt can cause our faith to run from God as well. But our what's next is God's already done. I I remember when I was 25 years old, uh, I had been in youth ministry for a few years, and uh, I was working to get ready to start a new church in St. Louis. Uh, There was something that I I had experienced in youth ministry that I never wanted to experience again. Uh, It was being a single pastor. Uh, Let me say that again. I didn't want to experience being single and in ministry again. I'd already experienced it as a youth pastor. You see, being the single pastor is really no fun way to roll at all. Do you know that every church mother has a granddaughter that you just have to meet? Do you know that every auntie in the church has a niece that if you just would meet her, she'd be the perfect ministry partner for you? 
It's a hard way to roll to be the single pastor. See, being single in church is hard enough, but being a single pastor takes it up like 10 notches. <laughs> and I didn't want to do it again, y'all. I wanted to be rescued. Uh, <laughs> and I prayed for a couple years that I would find someone before we started this new church. Uh, I knew it was good and godly to want to find a wife. I knew that he who finds a wife finds a, a good thing, amen, with an A, a good thing. And uh, I was trusting that God was going to do it for me like he did it for my friends. But looking around, I didn't see her. <laughs> I wasn't seeing her. Uh, and I mean, listen, listen, being a Christian, you already narrow your dating options immediately, don't you? You cut the field way down. You're swiping left a whole lot. <laughs> and you narrow the field. And then I was going to be a pastor. Narrow it even more. Somebody's going to marry into ministry. And then I was going to start a new church, which means I was going to be broke. Broke, broke, broke. So I need somebody who loves the Lord, who wants to be in ministry, and who don't need labels on their clothes, amen? <laughs> like, that, that's who I needed. Somebody who loved the Lord and loved ramen. Hallelujah! That's what, that's what I needed in my life. <laughs> this was a big what's next in my life. God, what's next? How are you going to do this? But little did I know that on a weekend trip to Nashville, Tennessee with some of my friends, the most beautiful woman I ever met would come walking into a theater with me in a bright red peacoat. Everything else was monochrome, amen? And she came in in a bright red peacoat with purple flowers in her hair. You see, my what's next was God's already done. And for the past 13 years, my wife and I have had so many moments of doubting what's next in our lives, God. How are you going to do these things for us, God? And every single time he answers, it's already done. Y'all need to testify today. If you're walking in God's already done, would you just shout, it's already done. It's already done. Ananias was afraid to go to Saul. Saul was a dangerous man. But God told him, I've already taken care of it. Huh. You just need to take the next step. And I don't know if I'm preaching to anybody today. Maybe I'm just encouraging my own self today. That whatever you're afraid to take your next step in, God's saying, hey, it's already done. While you're worried about what's next, it's already done. And you don't think that Saul was terrified too? Knocked down to his rear end, blinded by a bright light, confronted by a resurrected Jesus, and he's sitting blind in Damascus for three days. Ananias' step of faith was Saul's answered prayer. Your courage and boldness in what God is calling you to do next is quite possibly the answer to somebody else's prayer. Somebody sitting, blind, waiting, hungry, thirsty, and all it takes is for you to say, God, I know it's already done. I'm going to step out to answer somebody's prayer. Stop worrying about what's next. Trust that God has it already done. Take a page out of Ananias' book. Hmm. 
And when Ananias got to Straight Street, it was just like God told him. There was Saul. And when he laid his hands on Saul, his sight was restored and Saul was forever changed. And here's what we see, that Jesus can change the most skilled sinner. <laughs> Jesus can change the most skilled sinner. You see, Saul wasn't some low-level liar. Saul wasn't some upstart thief. He was overseeing the capture and murder of people who followed Jesus. He was an enemy of the church and of Jesus himself. And he would say that he was the biggest sinner around. But Jesus saved him. This is Saul's words to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this to his young protege. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Some would say that I am the chief of sinners. You see, Saul was the guy, listen, Saul was the guy that you would have given up on. He's too far gone. He's locked into his beliefs. Too educated to have his mind changed. You and I would have, have written him off, avoided him, not talked to him about Jesus, but not God. You see, God doesn't give up on you. No matter how far you think you can run, God doesn't give up on people. In 1890, a poet by the name of Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. He was a, a Catholic brother who had gotten injured and had to take opiates for pain control and became addicted to them. In his addiction, he found himself penniless and in the streets and far from God. And in this place, he writes a poem called The Hound of Heaven, that no matter how far he ran from God, no matter how much he tried to medicate himself and numb himself to the needs that he has, God would not stop pursuing him. He was like a hound dog on a bone. The hound of heaven will not stop until he gets what he wants. You see, God always gets his man, doesn't he? And then we see a transformation in Saul. God got him, and now there's a transformation. Verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues in Damascus, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? And has he not come here to bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded those who doubted him. You see, Saul came to Damascus to arrest Christians. <laughs> but in Damascus, Saul had been arrested by Christ. I'm going to say it again for the people in the back. Saul had come to Damascus to arrest Christians. But in Damascus, Saul was arrested by Christ. He had been changed forever, and immediately he began to tell the story of his transformation. And it amazed people. Nobody could believe what they were seeing. Wasn't this the guy who came to get us, and now he's one of us? The getter got got? How did that happen? <laughs> this is what an experience with Jesus will do to you. It will turn the most skilled sinner into a passionate preacher. And if you're here today, 
and you've been written off as too far gone. But you, you're like, ah, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't know. And even if I did know, I couldn't do nothing for you. But God in heaven knows what you've been through. He knows all that you've done. And when you come to him with all your stuff, he can do everything that you need to fix that. Huh. You aren't a lost cause. I'm going to look in the camera and say it. You aren't a lost cause. And it isn't over. And I love how it said that in the face of doubt, he continued to share his story. And verse 21 says he grew in strength. Do y'all know when you share the testimony of what God's done for you, your faith grows in strength? When you tell people about what you've gotten carried over by Jesus, about the victories that he's secured in your life, about how he's still working on you and you're not finished, when you share that testimony, your faith is strengthened, just like Saul. Even in the face of doubters, it's strengthened. And let me, let me tell it to you like this. I love this confession that Saul gives where he says, Jesus is the son of God. Now, can we talk theology just for a second? I want to talk theology as we uh, get ready to wrap today. This title that Saul proclaims after his transformation, that Jesus is the Son of God, it's confusion. It's been confusion for many. But for Saul, he was very clear in what he was stating. See, the Son of God was used as titles for multiple people in the Old Testament. This is why it's caused confusion. It was used as a title for Adam, that Adam was a Son of God. It was used for a title of the people of Israel. It was used as a title for King David as well. You see, the Son of God was used as a title first for Adam, who was literally born of God, that God made Adam. He was a son of God. But Adam, though made in God's image, sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Through one man's sin, we've all been born into sin. But Jesus, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. But unlike Adam, Jesus never sinned. And Hebrews 1 and verse 3 introduces Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And Saul himself will later write in Romans 5 that while through Adam, one man, the world was made sinful, that through the obedience of Jesus, one man, the world can be made righteous. You see, Jesus, like Adam, is the son of God. The nation of Israel was also referred to as the son of God. When God had Moses speak to Pharaoh about freeing Israel from slavery, he said that Israel was his firstborn son. That if they were not freed, God would take the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. Matthew 2 identifies Jesus as the true Israel. And in the same way, when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days in Matthew chapter 4, he repeats the events of Israel when Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, 400 years, 40 years, signifying the kind of son Jesus is, a son like Israel. But Jesus, unlike Israel, will not disobey his father. He will prove himself obedient even unto death. And maybe the most important title of the Son of God is in reference to King David in the Psalms, where he's referred to in Psalms 2 and 7 as the Son of God. 
You see, God promised King David that his son would sit on an eternal throne and rule and reign forever. But David's sons were terrible kings, and they destroyed his household. The prophets of the Old Testament would weep over this fact that the throne of David had been ruined, and they would prophesy about a time when a true king, a true son of David, would return and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus is born in the lineage of David, David's son, but a son who's completely righteous and proves to be God's true son. And through his death, Jesus pays for the sins of the sons of Adam, Israel, and the sons of David. And he proves that he's the true son of God and has an eternal throne. All the references previously to the Son of God in the Old Testament are just shadows pointing forward to Jesus coming as the true Son of God. The Son of God that Saul confesses at his conversion. Jesus is the Son of God because he took on flesh in the form of man, but he's also the Son of God because he's God the Son. You see, Jesus is the only person who's ever been 200%. You know, you, you tell people, hey, hey, keep it 100 with me. You want people to be 100 with you. Keep it 100% with me. Jesus is the only person who's ever been 200%. Jesus is 100% man, born in flesh like you and me, but he's also 100% God. This is why he can have victory over your sin and my sin and give us eternal life because he's not just man, he's the God-man. He's not just 100% man, he's 100% God. And Saul had an experience with this Jesus. He was confronted face to face with the Son of God, and it changed him. Ananias had a relationship with Jesus, the Son of God, and it gave him confidence to take a next step of faith in the midst of fear. You see, running from God is a part of everyone's story. Don't be proud. Don't be proud today. Running from God is a part of everyone's story. I watched yesterday as an estimated eight to 9,000 people participated in some aspect of the KC Marathon, the Garmin Kansas City Marathon. People from all over the world registered, trained, carb-loaded, and lined up to run for some reason for long distances. Zach, I see you. I see you, Zach. I know you were running yesterday too. You see, um, some of y'all don't, you're not, you're not quick with math. I'm going to help you out. A marathon is 26.2 miles. Uh, amen, amen. Uh, a half marathon is 13.1 miles. It's just half of the 26.2 for the, you know, if you want to track him. Uh, a 10K is 6.2 miles, and a 5K is 3.1 miles. Now, I would have participated yesterday, but they didn't have a 2.5K, and so I, was, so I was out. But what I've learned about running, what I've learned about running is that no matter the distance, it takes energy out of you. <laughs> Running can be exhausting. And we've all had some kind of experience of running from God, haven't we? If you're here today and running, see Saul met by Jesus and transformed by the Son of God. See Ananias, fearful of where God was calling him to go. You see, running is a part of everyone's story, but it doesn't have to be the end of it. Amen? It may be a part of your story, but it doesn't have to be the end of it. And I want to offer an invitation to you today. If you are here and you've been running from God, it can end today. <laughs> the race can end. 
And Jesus can say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. With every head bow, every eye closed all over the room, if you've never given your life to Jesus today, would you, would you pray this prayer with me? God, I've been running. I've run from you. I've run for your purposes for my life. And just like Saul, I'm sinful. But I want to be different. I want to run to you, God, not from you. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That in his flesh, he paid for my sin. And in his divinity, he rose from the grave to give me new life. God, I give my life to you today. And I want to live the rest of my life for you. No longer running, but resting in relationship with Jesus. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen.